Welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're broadcasting today via remote access, so that in light of the COVID-19 health emergency, we can maintain our social distancing and still bring you today's show. Please be patient if we experience any technical glitches. We hope that everybody listening is safe and healthy and doing what they can to protect themselves and our mutual communities during this health emergency. Wealth Matters is presented to you by Gasowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving your disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gasowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Robert Port from Gasowitz Frankel. And today we're talking about everything you wanted to know about probate. And now it's time to introduce our guest. We are pleased to have with us today someone who is an expert in this area, Tim Curtin with the Curtin Law Firm Atlanta. Uh, Tim, welcome. Thank you for uh, setting up to do this remotely. Uh, let me ask you first, uh, would you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, yourselves, uh, overview of your education background and, and what your particular practice area is? Sure, and, and thank you, Robert and Craig for having me today. My name is Tim Curtin. Uh, I'm a sole practitioner in Atlanta, Georgia. I own the Curtin Law Firm, and I have uh, had the Curtin Law Firm since 2003. I have limited my practice to estate and trust planning and probate administration. I'm a graduate of Wake Forest University School of Law. So let's start off kind of the easy thing. Um, so we're talking today about probate. But the first thing, unfortunately, that happens before probate is somebody has to pass away. And tell our listeners kind of what their responsibilities are when somebody passes away, because we see movies like Knives Out and other ones where the day of the, of the funeral, they read the will or whatever, and somehow I think reality isn't the same as TV. Sure, and, and that's, that's a great question, Craig, and that's a question that I, I get from a lot of people. And my, my first response is, is always, uh, don't rush. Um, it, this is typically a, a time of, of mourning. Um, you have funeral arrangements to be made. Uh, you, you have family getting together sometimes for the, for the first time in a long time. Don't think about the, the will and, and probating an estate at that point. Get, get through the, the family issues and, and then move to the will. There, I've been doing this now for, for 27 years. Uh, I have never been involved in a, a will reading. Those types of things are, are uh, like you said, Craig, for, from the movies and just don't happen anymore. So uh, someone passes away, and, and as you said, uh, there's no need to rush immediately. And I think your advice to, to proceed slowly and cautiously during a time of mourning and, and potential shock if it was a sudden death. Um, so how soon does a will have to be filed? Are there any time limits people need to uh, be concerned about? Robert, there really is no time limit um, in terms of uh, you will never hear from the court if, uh, if a will is not entered into probate. Uh, to answer your question in a, as a practical matter, I, I usually see a will probated anywhere from two weeks to six months from the, the time a person passes away. When it's on the earlier stage, that is typically when we have an executor who's appointed under the will who might be from out of town. They've come in for the funeral and, and they're just trying to take care of the, the business 
uh, while they're here in town. They, there, there's no requirement that, that the will be probated in a two week period, certainly. Let me ask kind of a, a, a kind of a basic question. We, we talking about wills, are the majority of people who died, do they have wills or do they not have wills? The, the majority of people uh, from, from what I've read, Craig, uh, do not have wills. And there are two parallel procedures that the, that the probate court follows, whether there's a will or whether there's not a will. Uh, we, we, we have a will, um, we have an executor appointed, and when we do not have a will, we have what's called an administration. There, the, the procedure is, is somewhat similar, but, there, but there's different nuances to, to each path. And but regardless, the timing that, is the same. Yes, correct. The timing would be the same. Yeah. And following up on that, does every, uh, once someone dies, does everyone need to have either their will probated or if they die without a will, do, does that need to go through the probate process? Are there processes... Or, or are there certain instances where, where proceeding through the probate court is uh, not necessary? Robert, that has changed significantly since I started practicing law. And, and to answer your question, there are many instances where there is no need to have the probate court uh, enter into the ad administration of, of, a, of a decedent, somebody who's passed away, a decedent's assets. And, and that's because Many of us have assets that have beneficiary designations associated with them. And what I mean by that, a common example would be a 401k. You, when you created that account, you most likely named somebody as beneficiary. That asset, when you pass away, doesn't pass according to the will. Uh, that passes according to that beneficiary designation. If you had a joint bank account, uh, which I call a survivorship account, the account would go over to the, to the survivor without intervention of the probate court. If you're married, most, most married couples own their real estate in a way that's called joint tenants with right of survivorship. That would also pass. So many of us, when, when it, it comes down to it, what we're passing through the probate court uh, can, can be very limited. I, I do want to underscore something you said, Tim. When we talk about 401ks or IRAs or others, but really primarily 401ks, even if you don't do a beneficiary designation, there are defaults. So for example, if it's a 401k and, and it's a qualified plan, you're married, your spouse is automatically the beneficiary unless both you and your spouse sign off to say it's someone else. So sometimes there's defaults. And so you've got the documents themselves may answer. So for example, if you don't put a beneficiary, it might say, well, this doesn't go to your estate, it goes to your next of kin. There may be other rules within the brokerage account or financial account that people don't necessarily think about when they sign the documents. Absolutely. Right. And, and just to restate that in a different way, because we get this question often, someone will say, well, grandpa left everything to me, so I should be getting his bank accounts, the life insurance, the 401k. And, and the point to reiterate is that all of those pass outside of the estate and their who gets them is controlled by the documents that the uh, recently uh, deceased person uh, executed, identifying who gets those, or uh, as Craig pointed out, in certain instances, the law controls that. Before that, we get into how you find out those answers, because I think that's a bit a difficult question, I want to take a step back. Before you know, you, you're going to the funeral and you're really focusing on your family, 
and you haven't figured out any what's next and you don't know what's there, but sometimes there's bills that are coming in, utility bills or car payments. And what do you do before you get access to the bank account or before you're appointed? How do you pay those bills? What are you supposed to do? It, it may be as simple as the medical bill. It may be as difficult as the funeral expenses. And that is a real practical issue that people run into. Uh, there's The estate has not been open, so, so nobody, neither an executor nor an administrator, has access to, to the decedent's accounts. Uh, there, there is, there's always a a workaround. Uh, a lot of times a family member will just end up stepping up and advancing the funds. Uh, sometimes we do have an asset that passes outside of probate, such as a, a life insurance policy, which would give somebody some sort of liquidity, liquidity to be able to pay for that. But it, it can be an issue and it can certainly be an issue when, when family members are in a disagreement over who, who is going to pay for grandfather's funeral or, or keep the, uh, the utilities on while, while we're getting the house ready for sale. A lot of times, sometimes, not a lot of times, sometimes they're online and you have their old passwords or maybe you have a power of attorney. Lots of people think, I, I think that they, well, I'll just go ahead and use that. Is, is that a workaround or is that not appropriate? It, it's not. And, and that is something that people should be very aware of. And because I see this issue come across my desk almost every month. A power of attorney is a document, I call it a lifetime document, where the, the principal, the person who prepared the, the document, is conveying to an agent the power to transact on the principal's assets while the principal is alive. It is only a lifetime document and terminates immediately upon death. A lot of times we have a situation where we might have a, a child or a another relative taking care of an older individual through a power of attorney and the the older individual passes and the the relative doesn't realize that they no longer have authority to act under that power of attorney and and they can frankly get themselves in a little bit of hot water by continuing to act on that with regard to the passwords on accounts that that's a huge issue and um I actually uh, saw a great presentation by Craig Frankel on this, where it's a it's a big no no to uh, to access somebody else's uh, online accounts through their password. Um, you should have you should have separate authority to do that. Again, once once somebody passes away, it's got to be that authority has to shift over to the executor, the administrator. I do happen to know the person who did that presentation for you. And, and it's being updated, you can go into what's called online tools in certain accounts and give somebody authority to access your account, whether you're there or, or when you're deceased, but you've got to take an affirmative act. So it, it's, there, there are ways to do it, but most people don't. So Tim, let's talk about some of the practical things that folks need to do once they're over the period of mourning. Um, uh, things such as, do you need to find the original will? Uh, do you need a death certificate to probate the will? Um, and, and, you know, a safety deposit box, how you get into a safety deposit box. And, and I guess more generally, the documents uh, that they need to be searching for to figure out uh, the decedent's financial affairs, what's in the estate, what's outside of the estate, and, and things like that. That's, that's a good question, Robert. So, the, 
you know, at the outset, it's always a good idea to find the original will. It is actually possible to probate a copy of a will. It's a little more difficult. You have to jump through a couple more hoops. But if we can find the original will, that, that's always the, the best place to start. What's, what's also very important is to make sure you found the most recent will. Because when you, when you execute a new will, any properly drafted will will revoke all previous wills uh, that, were, that were created. I know a lot of my clients are record keepers and they like to keep all of their wills. I tell them if they do that to write in big red letters on the front of their old wills revoked. Uh, but it is possible to, to mistakenly probate an older copy of a will and that could be a big problem if distributions have been made and then you realize that the, the provisions of the will have been changed. In terms of the other assets, I always advise my clients, I ask them to do this every year when they do their taxes since they're already doing something they, they don't particularly want to be doing. Keep an inventory of all of your assets, your life insurance policies, your 401ks, your, your IRAs, your deeds to your house. Do you own stock in any small businesses or limited liability companies? It can be excruciatingly difficult for a, a family member, even a close family member from, from an emotional standpoint, to figure out what a decedent owned. M many people then rightfully keep that information uh, pretty close to the vest and, and it, can, it can be extremely difficult to, to find that information. Um, yes, I know, I know there's some commercially available products and you can certainly do this on your own, you know, sort of just a notebook where everything's written out, what you got, maybe even, you know, depending upon your comfort level and writing this down, passwords and things like that in it so that those left behind uh, have some roadmaps as to uh, what to do. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing your wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We are talking today with Tim Curtin of the Curtin Law Firm, Atlanta, Georgia. And our topic today is everything you wanted to know about probate. So, so Tim, uh, how many of your clients actually make that list? Because when I'm dealing with it, and of course at Gaslowitz Frankel, we tend to deal with disputes. Um, notwithstanding how wonderful we think our clients should be, and this applies to me as well, we aren't great record keepers sometimes, or our filing system isn't as perfect. And you're actually seeing me on my screen at my home office. You're not seeing my filing system. I've carefully turned you away. But so, so if you use a commercial program where you keep passwords, that's a great thing. If you are organized and you have everything in a simple place, that's great. Um, so I, I would tell our listeners, tell your family members what file drawer it's in or what file drawer it's not. But let's assume you're not the great client or the organized client. What do you, where, do you, where does one go to try to find out what those assets are to understand what is a beneficiary designation? What life insurance policies do we have? So they even begin to figure out what's out there, including is there a will, all those kind of things. Where does one look? What is, what, what is one looking for? It, it can be very difficult to, to figure that those types of things out. And from, from a practical standpoint, I find that many institutions will give you information if you are able to produce a, a death certificate. 
Um, but you, you still run into the issue. Most of the times it seems that clients or clients can track down a decedent's uh, tax returns. And, and the tax and that, returns may have a lot. I mean, I know we've been talking about President Trump's tax returns and putting the humor aside, you can find out a lot of things from a tax return, for example, businesses and things because they're on there. Yes, and, and that's usually a good start. And you, you can go into the online, the online accounts and see, I see where they paid a premium to a life insurance company, for example. And, and that it's, it's very much investigative work to track that kind of stuff down if there is, if there is not, not sufficient record keeping. And you said online account, could you also be looking like at a paper bill, like a premium bill or like a bank account statement because you can't get online yet unless they let you. Absolutely. And, and that is a, a bigger problem Back 20 years ago, everyone was getting paper statements in the mail, and, and now that it's a rarity, and it, that it can be an issue. And Tim, I'm presuming it would also be appropriate to contact the uh, the late person's uh, lawyer, accountant, financial advisor, folks like that, to see what information they can uh, provide to assist the uh, the search for assets. Yeah, and particularly the financial advisors and accountants, they they seem to have much more data than than the attorney's offices typically have in my experience. You mentioned getting a death certificate. How do you get that? Um, the, the death certificate's usually issued by the, the funeral home. They usually take care of, of getting that. Um, and it, it can take a while to get the death certificate issued. That is one thing, interesting, interestingly, um, at least in the metro Atlanta counties, that you do not need to open an estate. Uh, the, the probate courts have recognized that it can take a significant amount of time to get the death certificate. So, so they do not require an executor or an administrator to produce a death certificate in order to open an estate. Uh, but I can tell you banks do and insurance policies do. Um, how many death certificates So you, you get uh, if, if the funeral home, you can request a death certificate. How many originals or certified copies do you recommend they get? Craig, I, I don't know if this is the right answer or not, but my, my default answer is always 10. I, I, I say 10 certified copies. Um, I'm probably uh, engaging in a bit of overkill, but, I, but I'd, rather, I'd rather get a, more up front and not have to track them down later. Yeah, better, better over than under. Yeah. So uh, you, you used a phrase a moment ago, Tim, called opening the estate. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. How does one go to file for probate, uh, administration of the estate and deal with things such as whether all the heirs need to go to court, uh, you know, sort of what the, at least initial process is. I'll preface this by saying, Robert, that every probate court does things a little differently. Of course. But generally speaking, the probate courts in Georgia are very customer service oriented that they understand that this is a, a process that is that is not generally a pleasant process and in my experience the the probate court judges and clerks uh, try to make this this process as easy as, as they can for people I want to I, underscore that and highlight that because people are afraid of probate and they say I'm going to do lots of things so I never have to probate my will in Georgia I have found the clerks in every county are nice. And the process isn't as, as horrible as it sounds. Just, I just want to say that, but, but tell us what the process is. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that, Craig. And you, you hear some of the, uh, the radio broadcasters 
talk about probate uh, like it's a four-letter word. And it may be in other states, but Georgia, that I, I tell my clients, if, if you are planning just to avoid probate in Georgia, it's probably not, you probably shouldn't be letting that consideration drive your decisions. In terms I will remind you that a lot of other states, there's substantial fees to do probate that you know, Florida and New York in particular have relatively high fees. So the more property that goes through probate, the higher the fees. That's not true in Georgia. That's absolutely correct. So I can walk you through really quickly what, what we would do to open an estate for a decedent who, who had a will. The process is finding the will like we discussed, finding the original will. You prepare a very short petition and all of, all of the forms for, for, for probating estate, or at least most of them, are standard forms, and any of us can find those online. It says it's not something only attorneys have access to. You prepare a short petition, and you bring that petition to the clerk's office of the Fulton County Probate Court, for example. You, you walk into the clerk's office, you sign your name, and you ring a hotel bell, literally a hotel bell on the, on the desk, and you take a seat, and usually within five or 10 minutes, a clerk comes out and greets you, brings you back to his or her office. If the paperwork is in order, and it usually is, the executor takes his or her oath that day and is issued the paperwork that allows them to begin to administer the estate. And in Georgia, and what, to tell our listeners what, what the name of that paperwork is, because it's a, it's, it's an interesting uh, term for, for those who don't practice in this area for lay people. Yes, I, I'm not a big fan of the term because it sounds a lot more complicated than it is. Th those, that paperwork, they're called letters testamentary for an executor. They're called letters of administration if there was no will and, and an administrator is, is appointed. I, I explained to my clients that letters testamentary is like a financial power of attorney for a deceased person. It allows the, the executor, or in the case of an administration, the administrator, that paper is what the, the executor would need to show to the bank, to the financial institution that uh, says basically, hey, I have the authority to act on this, this person who's passed away uh, estate. So a lot of times we see the petitions, they really are very straightforward. The, the mistake that we see the most that affects people is when, the, when they say, who are the heirs and the beneficiaries? Because sometimes you forget, well, what if somebody died previously? And I don't know about my sisters or my brothers or my children or my cousins or my aunts. Tell a little bit of what you're supposed to be filling in on that part. And, you know, what, do you err on the side of, I want to be real clear? Do you err on the side of, I'm only listing the people? What do you do and what are the mistakes you see that can be easily corrected? That is the biggest sticking point for getting an executor uh, appointed. And what the law requires that when a will is entered into probate, that all of the heirs at law receive notice that that's happening. An heir at law is somebody who would inherit if there had been no will. And it's really a legal safeguard just to make sure that, that there's a check on, is, is this will valid? Is, would somebody who would have otherwise inherited if there was no will, do they think there's anything wrong with, with that will? For, from a legal standpoint, from a, did, did the person have capacity? Not they don't like what's in there, but, but 
is there something fishy, so to speak, with, with the And you'd have to list the heirs even if it was for a, a, a non, uh, without a will, even if it was intestate and they're, they're, you're going to go for an administration without a will, you still need to do the, the heirs for the same reason. Correct. Okay. Yeah, Who are the heirs? What, you know, heir is a legal word. Who are heirs? The, the heirs, I like to, to say, are the, the closest blood relatives. The, the Georgia, Georgia law does set out who your who your heirs are um in the it's most it's easiest sense it is your spouse and your children um if you if you don't have a spouse and you don't have children uh then it goes up to parents and it goes out to siblings after but that if one of them had, had predeceased what do you do then there there is something called an heir determination worksheet that most of the probate courts will will give you and, and the clerks will actually help, help you work through that so you can decide, so you can make sure that you have notified the appropriate heirs and when to stop. You, you don't have to, there is a stopping point if you have a, a sibling who survived you and that sibling had children, you don't have to, you don't have to notify that sibling's children, you, you stop at a sibling. You're listening to Wealth Matters, where we're talking with Tim Curtin about everything you wanted to know about probate. So you've notified the heirs, you've filled out the form, you've got the letters testamentary or, or letters of administration, you are so powerful, you're Superman, what do you do next? Again, you, you take it slowly. So what, one, of the, one of the biggest mistakes that I see executors or administrators do is distribute property too quickly. The executor has a duty to complete an inventory of the estate and to find out who the creditors of the estate are and pay those creditors before distributions are made to any beneficiaries. This could be something as, as simple as uh, your, your, the last uh, medical expenses, the utility bills, um, but, but it could also be a, an unknown a tax liability that the decedent might have had. So it is, many wills may have specific bequests, and that would be, for example, I, I give uh, $1,000 to, to Craig Frankel. Well, even if it's in the will- We prefer the, higher numbers. Yeah, yeah, well, I was going to use 100, but I, I didn't want to get your hopes up, Craig. Uh, uh, so, before any of those distributions are made, you have to make absolutely sure that all of the creditors of the estate are paid because you could become, you could be on the hook for that if you make distributions too fast. Another thing, Craig, is what, what really gets beneficiaries upset with each other is personal property, what I, what I call tangible personal property, the stuff that was in the decedent's house. That is also part of the estate. But many times when somebody passes away, you will see family members literally pull up with moving trucks and, and move property out of the, of the house. And that, that's just something that they don't have the right to do. And, and certainly the, the executor doesn't have the authority uh, to distribute that property until creditors are paid and until the executor has an idea of what the, what the value of the estate is. Tim, let's, let's circle back a little bit to, you, you talked about paying creditors out of the estate and, and other expenses. 
Um, tell our listeners uh, about the priorities that, that are set forth in the law with respect to who gets paid first out of the estate because the executor, the administrator, you know, gets this and, you know, conceptual, a lot of people have their hands out. You got creditors, you got tax authorities, you might have secured debt, a mortgage, you might have, you know, a, a credit card bill. How does the executor go about figuring out how to prioritize any of that? The, the executor can certainly pay uh, the expenses of uh, the, the last illness. Um, the, the executor can, can pay uh, the professional help uh, that the that the executor needs to to retain to to help him or her navigate through the process with with secured claims uh, that is is really a, a, a different animal if you if you have a house with a mortgage um, that that always needs to be paid the the, the mortgage company can always uh, take that ahead of, of any other creditor um, when when somebody passes away, there is a notice that has to be sent out, and it's called a notice to debtors and creditors. And the the all all creditors have to be paid, but the the creditors if they if they fail to make a claim with the court, then they may lose their priority relative to another creditor. So, so I want to before we pay creditors. Um, I, I, I kind of have, well, well, let me ask one question. Let's just, what happens, is there any uh, opportunity for a spouse or children to get money um, to help them along the way before you start paying creditors? Because a lot of states have, have, you, have what's called elective share where, where no matter what you say in your will, a spouse gets something. I don't think Georgia's like that. So what's different about Georgia for that? Georgia has what... Well, I believe to be a, a unique statute, and that is called a request for year support. And a surviving spouse and also minor children can ask for, I think what you referred to, Craig, as an elective share. And that basically what they are, are asking for is, I, I am entitled to an amount that is uh, either in excess of what I'm when I'm provided for under the will, or I, I want to receive a distribution that is going to let, let me jump ahead of creditors before, before creditors are paid. And it, it is a common tool that a, a surviving spouse will use to obtain priority ahead of creditors. Now, and getting back to what Robert said, that would not help you in the case of a, of a mortgage, for example, where you have a, a, what we call a secured debt. When the question I hear often, I, I wish that everyone in my family lives till 107, as they say, and leaves a lot of money for everybody. Unfortunately, some people die without a lot of assets and a lot of debt. Does the survivors, the beneficiaries, have, are they liable for the debt? No, Craig, and that, that's, that is really a concern that a lot of, of people have. Um, you, just by virtue of uh, being related to somebody, even being married to somebody, that doesn't obligate you for for that person's debt, and and that is that is a reason why a lot of estates aren't probated because when when you look at the the debts relative to the assets, there will be no distributions to the beneficiaries. And the the 
and it's not an exception, but, but uh, what, what folks need to understand is they're not obligated simply by the relationship you described, but uh, if you get into the documents, they may have along the way guaranteed uh, the debt, but that, that's an entirely different situation as opposed to simply being an heir or a beneficiary of the decedent. Let's talk a little bit about, um, many, many folks have heard about trusts and the interplay of trusts with the probate process. So maybe first uh, give a little primer on, on what a trust is and how you often see it come into play in the probate process. The way I explain trust, the way I wrap my head around it is as a pretty simplistic view is I look at a trust as a bucket and you put assets in that bucket. It can be money. It can be a house. It, it can, it can really be any asset that you want to put in there. And that bucket has a contract on the side of it that says who is going to manage this money and, and what are they going to use it for and for whose benefit are they going to use it for? And there are, there are, in its most basic form, there's two types of trust. There's a trust that you create now, where you put money into this bucket now, and usually you manage that, that bucket of money while you're alive and while you have capacity. The other type of trust is a trust that doesn't get created until you pass away. And that has to be expressly created by the will. And, and that has another difficult name, but that's, that's called a testamentary trust. It's created by your last will and testament. Okay, so so what happens if there is a trust? Um, either either one set up uh, while someone was alive, or or someone or, or a trust that's a testamentary trust that uh, into which assets come as a result of their passing under the will. Two, two very different processes. The the trust that's created during the lifetime is administered completely separately from the the probate process. That, that trust, unless something's wrong with it, will, will never come in contact with the court system. That is, that would be administered by the person called the trustee who's given responsibility for that bucket of money. And that, that word, trustee, is exactly what that means. It, when you're naming a trustee, you better be sure you can trust that, that person because there is very little oversight uh, to, for, for that person in most instances. They, they, there is nobody watching the, the chicken coop. If you have a testamentary trust, then that trust cannot be created until the estate is probated. And it goes through the same process, a, a very, your most typical, at least in my world, your most typical testamentary trust is, if I, if I die, um, I'm gonna give my assets to my children, but they're not old enough yet to, to manage this money. So I'm gonna put it into a trust for them. And I'm not going to let them get access to that that money until they are X number of years old, until they're until they're 40 years old. So I've created a trust by my will, and my will appoints the trustee who's going to manage the money and what the trustee can do with that money before the child reaches 40. And usually that's pretty broad. The trustee can use the money for the child's health, education, maintenance, and support. Uh, very very broad. Uh, standards where they could they could use that money but before that trust can can be funded with the money from the estate the assets once again have to be 
inventory, debts have to be paid, and not until those preceding obligations are taken care of will that trust be funded. Let's ask the question that, that every client asks and that you as a lawyer probably want to hear. Does somebody who's named as an, who's named as an executor or who's trying to be the administrator for their spouse's estate or their children or parents' estate, um, do they need a lawyer? Craig, that's one of those, that depends answers. So for very uncontested, not even very, but, but in a lot of situations, no, you, you don't need a lawyer to walk you through that process. It, it is just like anything where you do it the first time. If you're trying to prepare that petition for the first time, it can, it can be a little daunting, um, but you can do it. You're, it's, there's certainly no requirement that, that you hire an attorney and, and the clerk's office, they have to short, they have to, to come short of giving you legal advice, but generally speaking, they, they try to be as helpful as they can to, to get you through that process. You, you, you do, you, you just need to do your homework. You, you, you need to make sure that the things that we're talking about today, you don't make distributions too quick. You don't give stuff away that you're not supposed to give away yet. But, but yes, you, you can prepare that petition. As I mentioned, the, the petition's online. You can bring the will down. You can, it, it, it might take somebody who's never done it before a few out more hours than it would to, to take an attorney to do it, but you can do it. I hear this question a lot and I see it done wrong. Does the administrator or executor have to file tax returns? Yes. I mean, there's, there is a final tax return that, that needs to be filed. Now, I, I will, I'll tell you in full disclosure, I usually let the, the accountants deal, deal with that issue. Uh, I believe a surviving spouse can, can file a tax return with, without opening an estate. Um, but, but, but if there are tax liabilities, that is a debt that needs to be paid. Um, Tim, we've been talking about um, folks who, who have significant responsibility, the executor after someone passes, a trustee. Um, and if someone uh, passes without a will, we, we'd have an administrator. Do you, do you have any thoughts about, uh, certainly when someone is alive and considering their estate planning, doing their will, do you have any thoughts about how they choose whom to identify uh, as an executor, whom to select as a trustee? Because in our practice, uh, that is often the source of a lot of disputes, either the person selected uh, is is not competent or uh, unfortunately sometimes uh, not trustworthy despite being trustee. With regard to, to the executor, I, I find that, that most of my clients are most comfortable with naming a family member. And if they, if they don't have a family member, a, a close uh, business associate, associate who they have known for a long time, uh, the the, the executor does not have to be an expert, but the executor needs to know what they don't know. And, and they can't be the type of person that will be too proud to ask for help if they need. I, I, that's where I see executors get into to, to hot water is when they, they just refuse to ask for help. And, and wh while I'm on the topic, the, the, the other huge issue that gets executors into trouble is lack of transparency. Uh, with with the, the beneficiaries of the estate that that is huge if, if there's any executors out there don't keep that stuff private the beneficiaries have a right to see uh, what, what's in the estate uh, give it to them transparency can solve so many 
problems before they become estate disputes. And I will mention disclosure. A, disclosure. Yeah, I, I will mention is that a problem that we often see is that everyone thinks their mother, their grandmother, their grandfather had more money than they did. So the longer you wait to tell somebody what's actually in the estate, the more likely it is they're going to assume that there's worse stuff. Let me backtrack one thing because I think it's important. When you're talking to clients and they get the will, where do you tell them to store it? My preference is you keep it in your house and you, if you have a safe, um, if, if you have a, a fireproof uh, filing cabinet, uh, it, it doesn't need to be Fort Knox. Um, it, it, it needs to be protected uh, against, uh, I've had client, a client who had his, his documents uh, in his basement and his basement flooded and, and he, he lost his documents. Uh, just make sure it's somewhere secure. Make sure it's somewhere where somebody else knows where it is. What if it's uh, in a safe deposit box? Can you? I mean, that's not. It, it's secure, but you can't open it. That, and that, that that's a, a great point. A lot of people bring that up. I'm personally not a big fan of safe deposit boxes. I I think people lose track of them. If you do want to put your documents in a safe deposit box, it's critical that you appoint somebody else to be a signatory on that safe deposit box. Otherwise, in order to get access to that safe deposit box, you have to go to the court and get an order to, to literally drill the box open. And, and it's, a, it's just a, you can get it done, but it's just a cumbersome process. And it's not something, that's not the way you wanna start the administration of an estate is going down to court and getting an order to drill a safe deposit box. Great. Well, Tim, we're almost at the conclusion of our show. So let me ask you to tell our listeners uh, where they can locate you, contact information, website, email, phone number, and, and anything else you want to uh, let our listeners know. Sure. Thanks, Robert. My office is in the Buckhead uh, area of Atlanta. Uh, my firm website is curtainlaw.net, and that's curtain with no A in it, C-U-R-T-I-N. Um, my phone number is 404-262-0290. Um, I will also share, share with you that I am uh, currently a candidate for the Fulton County Probate Court judge. Our, our judge of 18 years, Judge Toomer, who's done a wonderful job, is retiring. And, and so I'll, I'm seeking that position. That, that website is curtainforjudge.com. As we're wrapping up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. I particularly want to thank Tim for showing up via, uh, uh, I guess it's, it's Zoom, which is a first for us and being our guinea pig, I, I greatly appreciate your making yourself available. How to probate wills and how to administer estates is always a difficult issue for everybody. Uh, I want to wish again to our listeners that everyone is safe and healthy um, and is, is appropriately socially distancing so that we can uh, keep our communities and our families safe. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com and remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guest today, as, as we've talked, is Tim Curtin with the Curtin Law Firm, and we talked about what to do in probate. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm -hmm.